Good evening. It's good to be with you all. Thank you so much for having me back. It's wonderful to see the sunshine. Um, we haven't had that in Michigan for a month or two. Uh, so thank you for that. And um, we're turning in our Bibles to Galatians. And while you're turning there, I just want to express uh, really my appreciation for uh, the elders of the church, especially to Pastor Matt, for the invitation to come. Uh, he's a, he is a dear friend, and it's been a wonderful uh, surprise blessing of doing doctoral studies to uh, make such close ministerial colleagues, people I did not know before starting the program, and Matt is now a dear friend. Um, and he did remind me that there is a time crunch tonight because there's a Clemson game later. So, uh, we don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, so if he gets up and leaves at one point, we'll know I've gone too long. But then I'll need a ride back. So, uh, we're, in, we're in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Let me. Read these familiar words for us. They are the fruit of the Spirit. The plan for the conference, you kind of see it's laid out um, in the the program that you have. Um, Tonight is sort of an overview. So tomorrow, with the Lord's help, we're going to take a a deeper look at some of these virtues um, in the various services. Tonight, though, what I want to do is kind of just set the stage and, and frame our thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, and in particular, sanctification, godliness. That's, that's really what this, the theme is uh, this weekend. It's growing in godliness. How do we become more uh, like the people God is um, calling us to be? And we're using the fruit of the Spirit to help us with that. So tonight, we're not going to dive into any of the uh, virtues uh, specifically, but just try to think in a more broad sense of what what sanctification is all about. Uh, Galatians 5, I'm going to read these two verses, and then if you could leave your Bibles open, we will be looking at uh, some other passages as we go along. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is God's word, and it endures forever. Well, I want to make this, this proposition to you right from the beginning, that when we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit, when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, we're actually talking about the character of Christ. We're actually talking about the heart of Jesus. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we're actually talking about the person that Jesus was and is and always will be because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about the character of our Savior. I wonder if that's how you tend to think of this list of nine virtues from the Apostle Paul. Is your, your first thought that this is a, a catalog of descriptions for Christ? I, I think we can often put this passage in, a, in the category of anthropology, not Christology, right? That it's about us, it's about men, it's about humanity, uh, not so much about Jesus, right? It's about who we are or, or who we're supposed to be. Or maybe we say it's about sociology, who we're supposed to be uh, together, how we're supposed to interact with, with one another. 
we're talking about morality, right? These are words used to describe people. People are patient. People are kind. We hope so. So does it need to be more profound than that? Um, Closer to the mark would be to say that this isn't so much about us as it is about the Holy Spirit. It's teaching us about His work in our hearts, who He, the Spirit, is making us to be. After all, it is called the fruit of the Spirit, right, Jonathan? Come on. This is about the Holy Spirit. Well, that, that's true. Then that, that would make the uh, fruit of the Spirit a chapter in what we call pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, but still not rooted in Christology, the study of Christ. And I promise that is the last of the big words for tonight. Pneumatology, Christology, if you're hanging on, you got it. You made it. We're, we're, we're in the clear now. We need to ask ourselves, though, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? Is his job not to bring us closer to Christ? To actually put us into Christ? The, the job of the Holy Spirit, the work that he's doing, if indeed this is about the work of the Holy Spirit, is to make us like Christ. So we can't even understand what the Spirit does if we don't have a foundation in who the Son is. Romans 8.29 says that for those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. So yes, the fruit of the Spirit is about the Holy Spirit and his work in the lives of believers. But unless we have Christ as the foundation, we won't understand what he is doing. He's making us more like Jesus, and this is what Jesus is like. This, this list of virtues tells us about Jesus. Uh, and this is important as we think of sanctification in general, right? This idea of growing in godliness, becoming more holy. Again, I think we understand that the Holy Spirit is involved in that, but we don't want to say sanctification is exclusively a work of the Holy Spirit and remove Christ from that work. One theologian put it really well. He said, sanctification is a matter of Christology because it's our participation in the holiness of Jesus. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. In sanctification, God is remaking us into his image, and he's doing so by uniting us to the one who is his image. So, now, why do I think it's so important that we read the, Holy, uh, the fruit of the Spirit in this way, in this Christ-centered way? At least three reasons, and that's what we will explore tonight. And my hope is that by the end of our time together exploring these things and studying these things together this evening, you're going to come away with a, a greater uh, appreciation, admiration, uh, a, a renewed love for Jesus, and also a renewed desire to be holy. And as I will contend later, as I'll argue later, you can't have one without the other. If you love Jesus, you will want to be more holy. If you want to be truly more holy, it's because you want to be like Jesus. So that's what we're going to consider. And I want us to see the character of Christ in the fruit of the Spirit for these three reasons. I think it better helps us understand the text of Galatians 5, in which we find the fruit of the Spirit. Beyond that, I think it helps us actually understand uh, the whole sweep of redemptive history. And then, uh, thirdly and finally, it helps us understand what sanctification is all about. I kind of dropped some hints of that already in the introduction, but that's what we're going to come back to. We're going to spend the most time with that, this idea of 
If we're seeing Jesus in the fruit of the Spirit, uh, we are better situated to understand sanctification. But first, seeing the character of Christ in the fruit of the Spirit helps us to understand the text. I believe the context of Galatians 5, 22 and 23 demands this sort of Christocentric reading. Chapter 5 begins the final of three sections that you could divvy up the book of Galatians. Galatians 1 through 2 is Paul's kind of biography, is his personal story. Then 3 and 4 are theology and doctrine. And then 5 and 6 is application, bringing that doctrine to life. We could call it an ethical section. It starts in chapter 5, and look with me at verse 1. Galatians 5 and verse 1. And how does Paul begin this, this um, section on ethics? He says... For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, the, the idea of ethics or how we're to live the Christian life is rooted in our liberty, our Christian liberty. Christian liberty, by the way, is not the freedom to do whatever naughty things you want to do. Christian liberty is, is not the, the license to use whatever kind of language you want to use or watch... You know, whatever kind of TV show you want under the argumentation, well, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ. I can do whatever I want. Well, real Christian liberty is the liberty not to sin anymore. You're free from sin and the, 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 the power of sin and the penalty of sin. This is how the Westminster Confession beautifully puts it. It's chapter 20. And um, now, if you want, you can actually read along because it's in the back of the uh, Psalter hymnal. So you can take those out. Let's look together at this. So this is going to be on page 931. 931 in the bottom uh, left of the uh, the bottom column on the left side. And let me read for us the first section on Christian liberty. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. Notice what it does not say. It does not say the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their ability to get drunk with their friends on the weekends or their ability to watch rated R movies. We get Christian liberty wrong when we think it's a license to sin. We do a disservice, to say the least, to Christ himself when we think of Christian liberty in those terms. Christian liberty has everything to do with our relationship away from sin, not about cozying up to sin. And this is a freedom that Christ himself has given us. For freedom Christ has set us free, Paul says. Christ has made this possible through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, he, he calls us into the enjoyment of this freedom. Paul is saying the entire purpose of Christ's redemption is that you would enjoy it. For freedom, Christ has set you free. That you would live a life not enslaved to sin. That you would be sanctified, we could say. Grow in godliness. Who wants that for us? Christ wants that. We start to see how... Seeing Christ at the center of our sanctification is something that Paul wants us to see in the context of Galatians 5. Without Christ, we would not be free. We would be enslaved to a, 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 a triple threat, sin, death, the devil. Phil Riken says this, 
The only way to be free from this, this threefold tyranny of humanity is by trusting in Jesus. So the only way to be free from guilt is by holding on to the cross. The only way to be free from death is to believe in the empty tomb. And the only way to be free from the devil is to trust in Christ's final victory. So there is no hope for Christian, li- uh, for Christian living apart from Christ and his gospel. If we're not willing to embrace that, look what Paul says in verse, 20, uh, verse 2. If you don't embrace that truth, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He doesn't say the gospel won't be of any advantage to you, although that's true. But he says Christ will be of no advantage. Good luck trying to live a Christian life without Christ, in other words. Because Christ is your life. You see, Christ must stand at the center of Christian living because Paul is equating them here. And he does that other places, too. Uh, He does it also in chapter 3, if you flip back there. Um, Chapter 3 and verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? If, If you've been regenerated by the Spirit, and that's how you come into the faith... Into, into the Christian religion. You have faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit works that faith in you. You're regenerated. Now you're brought into it. Now is it up to you? Is that what the fruit of the Spirit's telling us? This is about me and what I'm supposed to do? No, if you've begun by God's work of His Holy Spirit in your lives, you continue that way. Colossians is another place. Colossians 2 and verse 6. This one's really important, I think. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. We, we get, I think, justification, the start of the Christian life. It's with Jesus. Right? We get it. it. The Christian life begins with Christ. But then what about the remainder of the Christian life? We get in by grace and we stand by works. Christ lets us in and the rest is up to us. As you receive Jesus, so walk in him. So live in him. Your Christian life is always dependent on Christ. Your sanctification, your growth in godliness is rooted in Christ. Looking back at at chapter 5 of Galatians, uh, we learn that the Galatians were enjoying at one point full freedom in Christ. Verse 7, you were running well. Now having fallen away from that, Paul calls them to walk by the Spirit. Verse 16. To walk by the Spirit is simply to call them back to running well in Christ. Jesus still stands, stands central in understanding these very practical points of application. And, and then the conclusion of the fruit of the Spirit proves this as well, right? We read of the fruit of the Spirit against these things. There is no law. And that's right after Paul has listed these passions of the flesh that we can fall into. Uh, we read of things like anger and dissensions and envy and drunkenness and all these things. And you're not supposed to, to, to fall into those habits, but instead cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, and then how does it end in verse 24? What wonderful hope is given to us and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There is victory secured over the sinful flesh. For who? For those who belong to Christ. Paul keeps bringing us back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for us and what he is doing in us and what he will one day accomplish fully in and through us on the last day. So the point is this. We must never, ever approach our attempts of sanctification apart from him, apart from Christ. Paul doesn't mean for us to do that. 
And so we don't want to read the fruit of the Spirit in that way. The context of this chapter proves that. The fruit of the Spirit, this list, is given right in the center of a chapter that is all about how Christ makes sanctification possible. That's the point of that chapter. For freedom Christ has set you free. It was his purpose. It's his desire that you live a godly life and and that you enjoy it. For freedom he set you free. And all who belong to Christ have crucified the passions of the flesh. That's how Paul bookends and right in the middle, well not right in the middle, but inside there, the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we're to understand it. It's something that Christ makes possible. So, I want us to see the character of Christ in the fruit of the Spirit, because I think that's what Paul wants in Galatians 5. But I think we can zoom out even further and say that the, the wider context of really the whole Scripture, the sweeping story of redemptive history, tells us we're supposed to see Jesus in these verses. So what do I mean by that? Well, I believe that the divine author has been dropping hints throughout the story of Scripture to point us to that conclusion. Little, little points of connection that we pick up and we see find their fulfillment in Christ. So, for example, we see that God has always been after one who would bear fruit for him ever since the very beginning. This is what he wanted from his image bearers. He began with Adam, who he put where? In a what? You can talk, it's okay. In a garden, right? To cultivate it, to work it, to keep it. Uh, to bear and cultivate fruit, a physical task that I believe certainly mirrored a spiritual responsibility. He was to mimic uh, in his heart and life the character of his God. Uh, Adam failed to do that. So who would cultivate heavenly character on earth now? Who would be a proper image bearer? Who would be a proper bearer of this fruit? Well, would it be the nation of Israel? Isaiah chapter 5, if you want, you can turn there. We learn that, no, it was supposed to be Israel, but they also failed. It's not Adam and it's not Israel, because what happens in Isaiah 5 is God makes this indictment against Israel for all their sin, and he does it with the metaphor of a vineyard and bearing fruit. And he says Israel was a vineyard that did not produce fruit. Uh, We won't read this entire uh, section beginning uh, in chapter 5, but The conclusion is important. Verse 7, the the prophet tells us how we were to interpret this imagery. He says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This is what God wanted. But he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He looked for his character to be reflected in his people, and he couldn't find it in Israel. Well, then you just have to turn a few pages because we're starting to get desperate. Who's going to produce fruit? And we get to chapter 11, and there's a hopeful prophecy. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What a hopeful message. And it even connects this branch from the stump of Jesse to the Spirit. Right? The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Well, this is none other than Jesus Christ. This is, this is Jesus. 
He's the descendant of Jesse and David, who finally bears fruit for God. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus even says in Luke 4, regarding his ministry, the Holy Spirit has come upon me to preach good news to captives. So through his Spirit-anointed ministry, Christ is finally the one who comes and puts an end to all vice and paves a way for godly virtue. Therefore, there really is no better way to study these gifts and graces of the Spirit than to study Jesus himself. He's the one who was endowed with the Holy Spirit of God beyond measure. He's the one whose every step was in harmony with the Spirit. And the Scriptures don't let you read about the life of Christ without um, coming to terms with his Spirit. Think about it. Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed and appointed for his public ministry at the Jordan through a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're told in Luke 4 that he preaches the gospel in the Spirit. We're told in Matthew that he's preserved through his temptation in the wilderness by the Spirit. He offers up his life through the Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. He's raised to new creation glories, Romans 8, by the Spirit. That the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives in you. You know that verse, right? The Spirit is there at the resurrection and everywhere else in between. From incarnation, resurrection, ascension, the Spirit is the constant companion of the Son of God. And that's why the Gospels attest that in Christ's life and ministry, the fruit of the Spirit is perfectly cultivated, grown, and manifested. So, why do I think it's important for us to see the character of Christ, the heart of Jesus, in the fruit of the Spirit, because I think Galatians 5 wants us to do that. Because I think the, the divine author wants us to see that from the whole scope of Scripture, especially Isaiah 5, then, or Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 5, then to Isaiah 11. And then the Gospel writers are, are clear to point out that the Spirit is there every step of the way with Christ. So those are two reasons why I want us to see it. It helps us better understand Galatians 5, better understand the Bible. But here's the third and final reason. This is really what I want to leave us with and spend the most time in. I believe seeing the fruit of the Spirit as the character of Christ helps us to better understand sanctification. How do we become more holy? Sanctification is an easily misunderstood concept. Or maybe we understand it conceptually, but then practically we get it all wrong. So I want to try to simplify things for us because I need things simplified for me. And I, I want to just leave you with these two things. Two things I hope you could remember. That when I see Jesus in the fruit of the Spirit, and, and remember, we're using the fruit of the Spirit this weekend as kind of an entry point into the greater discussion of sanctification, right? So this does not just apply to the fruit of the Spirit. It really applies to this greater discussion of of sanctification and, and growth and godliness. But when you see Jesus, his character and his heart in the fruit of the Spirit, I think you'll find two things hap happen. First, we have a better focus in our sanctification. And second, we have a better fuel for our sanctification. Better focus in our sanctification, and secondly, a better fuel for our sanctification. First, a better focus. A better focus. If the fruit of the Spirit 
is a description of Christ, then that means it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. You know, this is what we do so often when it comes to sanctification. We forget that it's a work of God's free grace in us, and we think it's all about us. It's all about us. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you think something is all about you when it's not at all. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Uh, my son had uh, his fifth birthday party this summer and had all his friends over and we're having a good time playing games in the backyard and finally it came time for, for the cake and uh, my wife brings it out. It was, of course, Ninja Turtle cake because he loves the Ninja Turtles or the Ninja Turtles, sorry, the Ninja Turtles, that's how he pronounces it. And we're bringing it out and we're singing and put it in front of him, happy birthday to you. And his best friend Grant leans in and blows out the candles for him. Grant, it's not about you, buddy. So there were some tears, <laughs> as you can imagine. I had to go relight the candles, do the whole thing again. Grant's mom had him by the collar for that second round. It's not about you. We've been in situations like that. We need to be reminded. This isn't all about you. I think we need to be reminded that when it comes to our sanctification. Do we have a part to play in it? Absolutely. Don't mishear me. But it's not all about you. In fact, it's a, a spiritually torturous way to approach the topic if you think this is about you doing something for God to make him smile. That is not how the Christian life works. So I think our autopilot approach to something like the fruit of the Spirit is to assume Paul is telling us who we need to be and how we need to perform but if our relationship with God is in some way based upon our performance in this area, well, things are not looking good. And I think, like I said, many of us know this intellectually, but practically we live as though our standing with God depends on our behavior. Or we might think of it like this, or maybe we don't think of it, but we act like this. I'm justified by grace alone, by faith alone. It's, it's in Christ alone. I'm justified. I'm made right with God. But, you know... My sanctification can kind of strengthen my justification. I, I know God says I'm saved on the merits of Christ, but you know, if he ever changes his mind, at least I can fall back on the fact that I've been doing pretty good, right? I, I, I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. You know, I, I've kicked some bad habits. And we think of sanctification like that. It's kind of shoring up our justification. We need to understand that something like the fruit of the Spirit isn't giving us a, a to-do list on how we can make God happier. Right? This is not a, a to-do list. This is a list of things that are done for us by Christ and in us by His Spirit. This is a declaration, not a demand. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest. It's a, it's a declaration. When we truly possess the Spirit of Christ, we will possess His graces. This is just one of the many reasons that Paul calls this list the fruit of the Spirit and not the accomplishments of the Christian. Right? It's about what God is doing. So we need to have a better focus. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the chapter uh, that this is found in, remember, it, it includes two lists. One is a list of vices and one's a list of virtues. Right? In verses 19 through 21, we have the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The works, pay attention, the works of the flesh. The term works reminds us of the legalistic trouble that we can all fall into. But works cannot bring us into the kingdom of God. Paul says, I warn you. Read this. This is very, this is very important. What does he say there? In verse uh, 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, since doing evil things won't get us into the kingdom, our kind of next question is, well, then what good things do I need to do? We still think we need to do something, but we miss what did Paul say? Inherit the kingdom. It's a gift. You don't need to do anything at all. So contrasted with the works of the flesh, works which can never earn heaven, we have fruit and not our fruit but the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. These graces are produced by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by our exertion, not by our effort. The Spirit is so often referred to as God's gifts in the New Testament. No wonder why. Right? He gives us the Spirit, and with the Spirit, He gives us these things. So if I remember that the fruit of the Spirit is first and, and foremost about showing me something of Jesus, I'll be careful not to see this list or sanctification in general as a to-do list to be conquered by me in my own strength. That's, that's not what it's about. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this is, <coughs> this is uh, not a to-do list to be conquered by us in our own strength. Sanctification, if I could put it this way, it's not about being a goody-two-shoes. It's not about uh, being a goody two-shoes. It's simply being, it isn't simply being good. It's being like Christ. It's being like Christ. It's about reflecting the image of God by being conformed to the likeness of his son. Maybe some of you have, have some important, you know, uh, uh, fancy silverware at home um, or brass throughout the house that you have to polish every so often. Or maybe you have a really fancy car you like to wax. Or maybe, who knows, maybe y'all wax your go-karts because I didn't even know go-karts were a thing until I came to Dillon, and y'all have them, and y'all love them, so maybe you wax them. I don't know. Golf carts. He's looking at me. He's like, they don't know what you're talking about. Golf carts. Do you, do you wash your golf carts? Do we wax those? I, I don't know. Anyways, we're getting... We're getting distracted. Go-karts would be a cool thing, though. <clears throat> when you're polishing something like silver or brass or your car, when do you know you're done? When you can see your reflection in it, right? That's sort of like sanctification. It's the process where God is removing the dirt from us until he can see his reflection in us. It's not about me being good. It's about me being like Christ, and that's something that God works in me. It's a wonderful thing. So think about this as you set up prefer, perhaps for the, the first or the, the 100th time in the Christian life. Don't try to please God by being good in your own strength. Please God by being like his son. And there is a distinction. Being good in our own strength is about us. It's about me. It's not about you, though. <laughs> but being good in my own strength is all about me. But being like Jesus is about him. Being good through our own efforts can never cause us to be conformed to the image of Christ, but being conformed to the image of Christ 
will always produce goodness in our lives. When we find our identities in Christ, then our pursuit of holiness will be preeminently a pursuit of Jesus. That's the focus we need to have. That's the focus. Well, a second and final thing. When we see the character of Christ in the fruit of the Spirit, we'll find better fuel for our sanctification. Better fuel in our sanctification. And that's because seeing Jesus is actually what sparks sanctification. And Paul tells us that. Uh, He tells us that in 2 Corinthians 3, you know this verse, Paul says, We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's here's the biblical model, method. This is how it works. When we look to our Savior, we'll start to look like our Savior. So if you want to grow in godliness, look to Jesus. That's the fuel you need. Jesus sends his spirit to be the great converter, the great beautifier, the one who takes the dust that we are in Adam and converts it slowly but surely to the very glory of Christ. And he does that by fixing our eyes on Christ. Our, our hearts can only be properly disposed, can only have that true tenor which Paul is speaking of in Galatians 5, 22, 23, if we first behold the beautiful heart of Jesus. The child of God, writes Jonathan Edwards, is graciously affected or moved because he sees and understands something more of divine things than he saw before. He sees more of God or more of Christ and of the glories exhibited in the gospel. It takes the eye of faith to see Jesus and to see him as beautiful, as attractive, to be drawn to him. The eye of faith. Right? Because even as he walked this earth, the physical eye didn't see that, right? There, there was nothing that we should be drawn to him. Isaiah 53, you remember the prophecy. That, you know, he, he, was not, he was not attractive by our earthly standards. There wasn't anything about him that people said, I want to be with that guy. But the eye of faith, which we all have, will look to Jesus in the scriptures, and we will see him as beautiful because we'll see his loving kindness. We'll see his joyful determination to go to the cross, his peaceful disposition, his patient instruction, his, his kind and tender care, his good and right ways, his faithful commitment, his gentle invitations, his execution of self-control. We'll see all of that. We'll see it's for us, and we'll see that it's beautiful. We'll be drawn to it, and as we're drawn to it, we'll be made like it. This is the biblical principle. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. When we look to Jesus, we see the man who lived these virtues impeccably. And then we remember God promises, us to, promises to make us like this man, this sinless man, this perfect man. We're going to be made like him. So that means no matter how pathetic or meager my um, attempts at, at, at um, sanctification are, or no matter how little growth I'm seeing in godliness today, I have hope that tomorrow there will be something more. Because God does not do a partial work of restoration He will complete the work he begins. He'll complete it. And what what joy that gives me right now as a Christian. I don't give up. I don't despair. I get to work because I know that my labor is never in vain in the Lord. Do You see, unless our sanctification is fueled by this sort of joy, this determination, this security that it's already won in Christ, this, this, um, this security that I am in Christ, this hope, 
that I have in him, the gratitude that I have for him, if it's not fueled by things like humility and gratitude, it'll be by default fueled by things like pride and fear and desperation. And that's not going to get you very far in the Christian life. But keeping your eyes on Christ will protect you from that. I mean, it really comes down to this. We're talking about the fuel we need for godliness. If you don't have Jesus, how can you expect to grow at all? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember to his disciples? And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? But if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. That's exactly what he says in John 15, 5. We need Jesus. We need him to fuel our growth in godliness. We need to see him. We need to get near him. We need to get as much of him as we can. You know, the best part, one of the best parts of being a dad is coming home. Because anytime I come home, the kids, they all scream, Daddy, right? And they run to me, especially after a, a trip like this, you know. And um, I, for, all, for all they know, South Carolina is on the other side of the world. And so when I come home on Monday, open up the door, Daddy, and, and what? They don't drag their feet. They book it. Right? Because when you love someone, you can't stand to be far away from them. Brothers and sisters, shouldn't that be our reaction with Jesus? Our response to Jesus? I say, oh, there's somebody I know, somebody who loves me, somebody who's done a lot of stuff for me. He's over there and I'm over here and I'm fine with that. Now we want to get to him. We want to book it. We want to get near him. We want to take all of him that we can. And more Jesus in your life, here it is, friends. More Jesus in your life will mean more holiness. It will. So get more Jesus. You know, if we divorce Christ from our sanctification, if we separate these things out too far, we'll lose the greatest catalyst for growth and godliness, right? We'll be sitting around, we'll be praying for the Holy Spirit to come and to make us better, make us more holy, and then we'll be, you know, kind of looking at the watch. Well, did he do it now? I don't know. Has it happened yet? Well doesn't need to be that mysterious or that mystical or if we think it's up to us you know we're, we're rolling up our sleeves and we're getting to work and we're gonna you know work ourselves into the grave wondering have I done enough have I have I done enough to become more holy it doesn't need to be that complicated sanctification is not complicated I did not say it's easy it's not easy but it's also not complicated the Holy Spirit applies Jesus to our hearts to make us more like him. So get more of Jesus in your life. Read your Bible. Uh, pray to him. Get yourself to church and surround yourself with people who have Christ dwelling in them. I mean, this is part of the way we experience Christ is in the church. Through one another and our words to each other and our acts of love and mercy. And so that's what we're after this weekend together. Seeing and understanding something more of Christ and all the wonderful glories of his gospel. And uh, my hope and prayer is that in those following sessions that we have tomorrow, you will see and come to understand and believe and rejoice in the fact that Christ came down for your sake and was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For you and for your salvation, he was those things. And so now, in gratitude, you can be those things for him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask that you would uh, take these things that we have 
meditated upon and that we've studied and that you would apply them to our hearts, that you would apply Jesus to our hearts in so doing that you'd make us more like him. Uh, Would we see Christ more clearly in our lives? Would we pursue more closely after him? Father, would we come to know and to love his character, his heart, and uh, be moved, uh, that our hearts would be melted in gratitude and in love, that we want nothing other than to give our lives to him and to be used in whatever way he would see fit. Father, we need you to give us these desires. We need you to give us new life. We need you to regenerate us. We need you to renew us. We need you to sanctify us. We are so grateful for the promise, though, that we find in the scriptures that once you begin a good work in us, you will see it to completion. And with that hope, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.